Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets to every showing. My name is Jason Daphnis and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And today's episode is uh, a very special one where we've got to interview the composer and one of the actors from Ganjan Hess. Uh, Sam Wayman joined us um, on our podcast. Uh, Sam is an incredibly accomplished composer, arranger, actor, and uh, all-around artist, I guess. He is also the brother of legendary soul singer Nina Simone, uh, and he was kind enough to join us on our podcast after we reached out on Twitter. Uh, so we're really, really happy with how this turned out. We just got done talking. Um, yeah, he uh, he spoke a lot to the process of creating the soundtrack to Ganjin Hess and sort of contextualizing the the history and making of the movie itself, which is really exciting. Um, we talk about a lot of stuff, and it's centered around Ganjin Hess, but it touches on a lot of aspects of his career and life and ideas, and he's a really incredible guy. Um, and maybe just check this out, I guess. You're already checking it out, but it's really exciting. Um, we're so glad that we got to do it. So, yes, please enjoy. Um, you can expect a regular episode on schedule next Tuesday. But until then, please enjoy Sam Wayman on try love and one more thing uh you can listen to sam's current music on soundcloud find him on twitter at sam underscore wayman on facebook at the sam wayman fan club and find the ganja and hess lp pressing at light of the addicts website we'll have links to all those things in the show notes too uh enjoy the episode we really really did thank you for listening to try love uh today we are very very pleased to be joined by special guest Sam Wayman. Thank you so much, Sam, for being on our podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, if For those who do not know, Sam is a prolific composer, musician, arranger, activist, creative legend, artistic force, uh, brother and, and collaborator, of course, to uh, the late greats Nina Simone. Does that about cover it, Sam? <laughs> yes, that's a good lead in. <laughs> 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 I try, I try. Uh, and of course, the topic of our discussion today, uh, as everybody who's listened to this show knows, uh, we loved the movie Ganja and Hess, which played at the Trilon in the lead up to Halloween. Um, oh, the, so okay. we're going to be focused. Uh, this, some of this might be news to you uh, too, uh, Sam. So, <laughs> so just let us know. <laughs> but uh, of course, ni- ni- Bill Gunn's 1973 experimental horror film, uh, which Sam both wrote the music for and acted in, played a pretty big part, uh, and which played at the trial and, of course, in the lead up to Halloween. Uh, we all love the film and your work on it. So we just we can't tell you how much it means and how excited we are to have you with us tonight, yeah. Sam. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so everybody has seen everybody has seen the film. Of course. Oh yeah. Oh. Okay. All right. And we were so glad too. The, uh, the Trilon is really good at picking great movies to play. And I think they got one of the uh, restored versions to play at their theater just a few weeks ago. But um, I'm just going to kick us off uh, by asking, what is, what is your can life you, today? Can you speak up a little bit? Sure. Sure. I'll be a little closer. You might not be okay. able to see my mustache if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I'd like, I like to see your movie <laughs> that's cool i i'll just ask by starting off what is your life like these days sam how have you been like what have you been up to this year 
Well, you know, because of COVID, um, it's really, it kind of restricts musicians who perform live. We can't do that as much you know, around the world. I have been doing some duo work with my guitarist here and there, uh, but that's been limited. I am in the, in the recording studio cutting some songs of, from my new album called or Songs, oh, the Songs in the Book of Samuels. That's the name of the album. So I've been doing that. But other than that, I've been staying alive and working. I'm a, lands- I'm a landscaper by trade. I used to be a professional landscaper. So I- I'm doing hard labor work, helping my friend out and st- staying alive. But I'm good. I've been good. I'm so glad to hear and that. No one, and no one in my family. So, and I'm blessed with that. You know, yeah. Uh, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm, I'm practicing safety and health. I mean, you know, I'm only 29 years old, so I got to stay healthy. <laughs> you know, that's right. You want to see another 29, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll see 30 <laughs> in a day. We'll see. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm so glad to hear that you're doing well these days, Sam. I, yeah. I, so. Know, I, 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 I have to say, I am, I'm excited that Ganja and Hess has, has um, racked up such accolades and people are interested in it. Because in 1973, nobody would have, wouldn't think that far ahead. Uh, you know, when you work on a project, you work on the project for its sake, for the life of the project. And... If you're in it for money, strictly money, you usually don't get it the way you think it is. It doesn't come out the way you fantasize it to be. But when you deposit your energy and your creativity in the work itself, it will it will speak for itself. It will do what it will carry you and your life and your creativity where it's supposed to go, whether you want it or not. You know, that's why one of the things that Bill Gunn and I strive to do when we made this film was do it from our heart, do it from our soul. Um, you don't get an opportunity, every opportunity that comes, because success is only based on if you accept the opportunities that come your way, you know. And uh, that opportunity knocked on our door, and we said, uh-oh, okay, Here, here's our chance. Let's do what we do best. And because our name is going to be on it, and and uh, it's what we believed in, and that's that's what I still believe in today. You know, mm-hmm. that's how Gone got made. Um, because that's not the way Gone. The way Gone just has started out. The way Gone just has ended up is not the fantasy that the producers had in mind. No, they didn't know what to make of the film. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, we so then. Yeah, yeah. What? Where did you start then? It, it, what is your process then for for creating a film score? And it sounds like maybe it was one of those opportunities. Was it was it different for Ganja and Hess? Uh, did it, how did the process for creating the music differ from how you might have normally approached a film? Oh, uh, the music. Well, I'm a Southern gentleman. I'm from North Carolina, and I'm from a family of uh, preachers. And one of the things that Bill uh, loved about, I got to say that he loved about me was my gr- grassroots, my down to earthness, my 
you know, take no prisoners kind of attitude. Um, and, and the idea of Ganja and Hess, as you well know, takes place, the whole thing is about the church, about the cross. And one of the questions that you asked me to comment on was, how did I get that role to play the preacher? Did I audition for it? Or did he ask me? He approached me. Really? I didn't have to, I, I, he said, Sam, you've been auditioning for it all your life. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and as your friend, you're the perfect place, person for the role. Well, that was my first film that I've ever acted in. Um, that was my first feature film to compose the music for. And I was only 20 something then at that time. But I knew the, I knew the film, I knew the story because Bill, Bill Gunn and I had a house together. So I understood his psyche, you know, um, I understood where he was coming from. And I lived every day on the set of that film. I knew who Luther Williams was. I knew who Ganja was. I knew who Hess was. I knew who the, I knew who everyone was because mm -hmm. it touched part of me. And musically, he left it up to me. I, no, okay. actually, in a way, when I I've gone on to write film scores since then, but my process, which you asked about, is very interesting. I. I like to know what's inside the director's head. I have to know the concept, his, his, his thoughts, his energy, um, how he sees the characters, and how he sees and views the characters and feels the characters translates into notes for me, translates into sounds. Uh, to me, each one of those characters was a note on a staff. And that's how I viewed the school, um, because that's the way I'm made. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah. I've been I've been playing music since I was three years old. So my mom told me that at three years old, I just called up to the piano and started playing. Well, that freaked me out. I said, "What are you talking about?" I, said, <laughs> I mean, when you're three years old, what do you know except diapers and balls and and just making chaos and creating trouble. But she said, no. And like my sister Nina, she was the same way. So um, I knew though that music was what I was made of. Not only music, but cre creating music, composing, mm -hmm. writing music. Mm -hmm. um, once I accepted what what my gift was, and I and I look at all creative people as having some kind of gift. I, I, we don't take it for granted, you know. I don't think one should. That is, because my mother always had a saying. She used to say, "Son, um, if you don't, she said, do not abuse your talent. Um, or you will lose your talent." So I don't abuse it, and I've never lost it. <laughs> well, we're really glad for that. Uh, stepping yeah. back, just stepping back just a little bit, you said that so much of that movie was already 
you, sorry, I'm still speaking about Ganja, has so much that music was already in you, so much you had just soaked in it completely. How far along was the movie, like scripting and writing, before you uh, started writing the music? I wrote it from day one. First day on the set. Wow. I, I, I was on the set every day. I had to be. I insisted that I be. Um, it was not a problem because that's how I could feel the music. I mean, I, I wasn't going to wait until the music, the film was shot and then sit down and write a score to it. Mm-hmm. That didn't feel right for that film. It just wasn't, it wasn't natural. It was, I wasn't comfortable with that process. The process that I was comfortable with was I wanted to, again, I wanted to feel the energy. I wanted to feel the pain, the joy, the, the, the relationships that are going on between the characters. Um, to me, that, was, that translated into sound. Sound and translating into music. Um, uh, the sound man knew where I was coming from. The music editor knew where I was coming from. The whole point was, I started writing the music from the day one, from day one, the first day on the set. Now remember, uh, the script, I was the, what they called it, um, I forgot the technical name for it. Um, I typed the script. I typed Bill's script. Really? I typed it. And I, proof, I was a proofreader, that's what they called it. I was a proofreader. So I knew, I, yeah, I knew the story. I mean, we discussed the role of Luther Williams. We discussed um, the role that the preacher would play in the, in uh, metaphorically with Hess and the cross, the symbolism of the cross. Um, he knew that I knew the Bible left and right. And so we, we, we discussed scriptures. We discussed all of that. You know, it wasn't by happenstance. Nothing in that film was by accident. <laughs> It was it was deliberate, you know, and it was all in Bill's head. God bless him. I mean, he was a genius. He was a genius of a writer, and he, and he had a great vision. And we talked about we talked about the the style of the film. Um, we talked about the the visual of the film, um, like most of the furniture in in the in, in the uh, mansion was ours. You know, we didn't have any money. When you don't have any money, you you know you go to the attic and you grab stuff that's been stuffed in mothballs <laughs> and dust and stuff. And so <laughs> that's what we did. You know, the African art and and the Oriental rugs and just basic stuff. Okay, we don't have that much money, so let's just do what we do. And and I'm happy to say we made it ours. You know, it it, it became a fabric of our of our uh, of our DNA. Wow, that's that's amazing. I uh, so you were definitely you were involved from very much from day one, right? So it sounds like um, for the making of Ganja and Hess, the producers came to uh, Bill Gunn and they wanted him to make a vampire movie, right? That's right. And uh, so, how did he take that? And and where did he go with that? And it sounds like you were there and you you were involved in those very early discussions where the oh, the idea sort oh, of fomented. Oh. Yes, I was. I was there in all the meetings that we had with Kelly Jordan. 
they they wanted they wanted um you know that was the period of black exploitation films everybody wanted another superfly they wanted another blackula because they didn't believe first of all that uh the black audience was worthy of hollywood type films until superfly came out and curtis mayfield wrote that smashing score and it made zillions of dollars said, uh oh that's an audience we need to tap into so every white producer was knocking on every black artist's door every black white they wanted another superfly so when they came to us um they wanted that kind of film and that's what they thought they were going to get but they were very much surprised to to were uh, not to the film's detriment because it's gone on to live in an effigy but that's not what they expected but they gave us their outline we knew what they wanted and bill and i discussed it we said no bs can i curse in absolutely uh, please please yeah please do <laughs> please do okay that was bullshit. We knew that we were not Hollywood uh, puppets. We were not going to play that kind of game. We said to ourselves, because that was during the 70s, so that's when everybody was struggling. Every actor, every, every black actor and screenwriter, producer wanted to get a film made. And here we had two producers who were going to give us some money, and here was our time. So we said, okay. And Bill said, "No, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a script, and uh, I'm going to do Ganja and Hess." I said, "Well, this is off camera now, mind you. We were not in the office when he was having this conversation, but the bottom line was, well, Bill, you know they're gonna hate your guts for this. You know this is this is not what they want." But he didn't give a hoot. You know, he said, "Look, we're gonna make a great film." And Cheer Schultz, God bless him, he was a great producer. I don't know if you all know who Cheer Schultz is. Well, I'm sure you do. He produced uh, Children's Television Workshop. He produced, um, what's that other film that won the Academy Award? Uh, a Soldier Story. Okay. He was our friend. He lived in New York. Uh, he was all for it. And he supported us. He was the executive producer. Um, we discussed how we were going to make that film. The storyboards, we got the right crew. Every, everything about that film was not premeditated, but it was thought out, well thought out. We had a we had a concept, we had a dream, and as you know, every idea begins with first of all, it has to be a concept, and we had the concept. And then we had the uh, the audacity to take that concept and bring it to life. And everybody that worked on that film agreed. They liked where we were going. We had uh, the sound man, the director, the gaffer, the water boy, the script girl. Everybody came from different Hollywood type projects that they were sick of because they couldn't feel it. It was just a job. They loved coming on this film because it was full of warmth and family, and it was serious. And the dichotomy here is that it was about something real, something that was different. And also, we were determined 
that the images of people of color were going to be beautiful. Because a lot of people don't know this, like the Klieg lights, when you light black skin, it's quite different from white skin. And so we wanted to make, that's why Ganja looks so beautiful. I mean, ooh, she's gorgeous in that film. And <laughs> um, that was deliberate. He, he knew what he wanted. He knew the image, and we were determined to have that. Uh, Dwayne Jones, he was not, uh, he was a very sophisticated anthropologist, I think he was, okay? Sophisticated, but down to earth. He was on the down low, you know? He was cool, but he was rich, and he was a gentleman. But Hollywood hasn't seen anything like that before. Mm -hmm. uh, black people had not been working on film, Hollywood films, with that kind of imagery that they themselves could mirror and see themselves. You know, they were tired. We were tired of looking at um, gunslingers, you know, hookers, drug dealers, um, shoot 'em ups all the time. We wanted to make. He wanted to make something that had some character to it, something mm -hmm. that transcended, should I say, uh, the expectations of people of color. Mm -hmm. And that's why he did that. I mean, that, I was think... the, that, that was what, that's what was behind the feeling mm -hmm. of Gandhi. Uh, of I, think, I think history has proven out on that by now. I mean, it's unfortunate that for decades, the movie was glossed over and sort of recut. I know when it was first released as something completely different and that the vision was kind of distorted before... Uh, before it was then picked up, you know, in recent years, like you said, that it's getting this reevaluation. Yeah, but you know what happened was when, when, when the film went to France, you know, most American films, you see the different kind, they look at it differently. It took them by a storm. You know, like I said, it won the best, it won the Calm Film Festival Award. One of the, it was called one of the 10 best films of the decade. And Diana Ross was furious because Lady Sings the Blues was there. And Hollywood movie, <laughs> uh, had had sent all, you know, they sent, they spent zillions of dollars on, on junkets to cover their film. And I mean, this little inky dinky film called Ganja and Hess was received by Josephine Baker. She was like the queen of France. And Bill was escorted all around France with Josephine Baker on her arm and it made every every hollywood superstar jealous they were furious who who in the hell is they knew who bill gunn was but where's ganjin hess where does this film come from you know and here they are they have just made these zillion dollar films and the movie companies had spent a lot of money with promotion and pr people ahead of time to lay the foundation for a publicity PR blitz, and Ganjin Hess did it. Mm -hmm. Well, that was amazing. It's just so surprising. We were so thrilled, and Bill was just totally overwhelmed. He was thrilled, mm -hmm. but he was, he, and at the same time, he kept saying, yeah, well, I'm not surprised. They got what they did. <laughs> 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 but he knew, he, knew he, had, he knew he had an idea that he had to get it out you know he knew that right right um, 
So we'll get more specific in a second, but I want to linger there for a moment if we can. Where were you during all that when it was getting okay. uh, really well received in France at Cannes? Were you I, I, there? I couldn't, I couldn't go to France. Very good question. I couldn't go to Paris at the time. First of all, um, we owned, uh, you remember who Ben Hecht is? Y'all know the writer Ben Hecht? He wrote Wuthering Heights, etc. Okay, well, we owned his house, okay. And the lady who lived next to us, uh, Mrs. Um, oh my goodness, she uh, what's that financing company, uh, Wall Street? Okay, I can't remember her name. Very super rich lady. She was our neighbor, and she used to love it when we would go out on the lawn, and I would go out on the lawn, and I would bring my band, and we would just play on the lawn, or look at Hudson River. And I owned uh, we owned a um, tennis court. She heard about the film being made and being submitted. She was a, she was a, uh, uh, um, she, uh, she used to donate to the arts. Lehman, Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers. This is Mrs. Lehman of Lehman oh, Brothers. Okay. okay. She used to complain because our car used to get away in the way of her limousine pulling into our driveway. Okay. So she said, we, because we had just sued Warner Brothers. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, we were having a fight with Warner Brothers at the time. I say it that way to all the lawyers who happen to be listening. Okay, um, <laughs> but we didn't have enough money to go to Paris. We didn't. We didn't have enough money to go to Paris. So what she did was she offered to buy our tennis court. She said, "Look, don't worry about it." She sent her houseman over to our house. This is a basic. This is a true story, and it's a great story. She sent her houseman over to our, we were neighbors. She sent her houseman over to our house and, told, and invited us over to have tea on the lawn overlooking the Hudson River, okay? <laughs> so we sat there having tea. And this is a scene right out of Great Gatsby. And um, she said, oh, by the way, Sam, you know, I love when your saxophone player plays this and when you play the piano. and." And she loves it when I would sing on the lawn. She said, by the way, this is for you guys. She sat there and wrote a check right there for the tennis court. She said, we're going to buy your tennis. You want to you go to Paris? Bill said, yes, we'd like to go. Because we didn't have any money to go. You know, she wrote a uh, check right there and bought the tennis court. He said, well, you know, you won't have the tennis court. Anymore. Said, well, hey. <laughs> I think we can do without a tennis court. Let's just go to Paris. So, um, but I had to stay back and man the fort. I had to stay back and, and take care of what was going on with the, the follow-up to Ganjin has the press in the house. And so he said, Sam, uh, you stay here. So he went. And that's how that happened. That's why I didn't go. I had See. to keep the foundation and keep what was going on back here solid for his arrival back here but when he got there uh he just you know called me every day two or three times a day to tell me what the hell was going on and <laughs> i would see the news flashes and i see the news reel and i read about it in in the hollywood reporter and so forth i said okay and downbeat magazine about the music and he would just tell me about josephine baker um and then the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, so then take us back 
to where it began. What do you remember the first thing you wrote for the Ganja and Hess soundtrack? Sure. That's a good question. What was that? You got, you got to learn. You know that song. Right? You got to yes. learn to. Yeah, that was the first song I wrote. It's wow. such a and, jam. Oh man, you. that's such a good song. It's, it is. It is. Yeah. What? What? Did that? Did that help? Like set the stage for the rest of the music you wrote for it. Then was that sort of a sort of a template, a starting point, or was it just top of your head? This is what goes first. Well, the whole thing about the film is about Hess Green letting it go, right? In the shadow of the cross. That's all I needed. That was the impetus. That was the motivator. And I didn't need a whole lot of lyrics either. <laughs> you got to learn to let it go. You got to know when it's over. That's all. That's all. You know? Um, but, yeah, that set the tone. Mm-hmm. But as, as so um, one of the things about that film, it has different genres of music in it mm-hmm. because different scenes, different styles, different moments. The series, you know, it's a series of moments and experiences that Hess was going through. But I knew that You Got to Learn was... Um, because you asked a very good question, and not many people asked that question. Did it set the tone? I suppose it did. When I look back on it, mm-hmm. you I wasn't thinking that when I wrote it, but how, what was it like to balance all those different genres? You already said that the movie contains, I mean, that we heard it's got blues, jazz, gospel, and even some more traditional chant type music uh did was that just one thing after another that came to you or was that part of your roadmap for building this soundtrack was to include all these different sounds it wasn't premeditated and that's what people may think i mean as i said in the beginning the characters in the film motivated me they told me what to write they gave me they gave me the roadmap, they gave me the path. And um, the bathroom scene with um, those African instruments with Nadi Kumar on, on on the thumb piano and the strings. Um, in the garden scene with the uh, Mozart. I mean that that and then with the garden with um the queen, the, the, the great queen, Murthia, you know, that, that, with Mabel King, that, that, I mean, how, how, where else could you go except there? That, I mean, you, you couldn't play, well, we didn't have hip hop then, you know, but you couldn't play <laughs> hip hop over her in that African, I mean, you couldn't do that. That wouldn't work. <laughs> But I, I mean, I think every every creative person can can relate to what I'm saying. It, the moment, every moment has its life has its life structure, has its birth. Every moment, every moment is laid with a, it has a thought process to it. Every moment, moments and memories are not happenstance. We uh, one of the things that I like about Ganjan Hess is that Ganjan Hess 
was made of a series of memories. You know, we are memories. We are, we are, we, as adults, we are memories, collective memory, the result of collective memories. And so each one of those film, each one of those songs and those musical pieces, to me, represented characters in the film. It was hard, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't, uh, I didn't take it for granted. I don't take my art for granted, but I do know that every, every situation motivated me. When Dwayne, after Dwayne, oh, Dwayne, let me just speak to characters, Hess. <laughs> after Hess has that, uh, experience with the uh, prostitute in the in, in 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 that room, and then he walks out on the street because that was shot in Austin, in New York. When he walks out on the street, I use the jazz version of Ganja of, of "You Got to Run" with the saxophone and and the bass and stuff because it was like sophisticated. It's like he just he, he just had a a, a a release, you know. Uh, he got his fill of blood. He needed blood, right? And and that was his addiction. And so when he walked out into the beautiful light and the sun and the sunset, and what was going on in the streets and the activity of the people, the hustling and bustling of the cars and stuff, it was like, okay, we both, wow, boom. So I wanted the music to to illustrate that, and that's why that piece of music, that arrangement of my song, you got to learn, uh, was. That's why that particular arrangement was there. So that's, oh, sorry, Aaron, go ahead. I was just gonna ask, uh, that, that song was, uh, was also used um, by Spike Lee in his remake of Ganja and Hess. Um, yes. I believe it was 2014's uh, Sweet Blood of Jesus. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you talked to them about that or what kind of your involvement was there uh, for the, the kind of reuse of that song? You want to hear an interesting story about that because uh, I got the call from my uh, agent saying uh, Spike was trying to meet you. And I mean, I, I knew Spike, but uh, I had not worked with him in, 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 on a film before. And he had called my answering service and left a message. And, said, uh, and I said, okay. Uh, I finally, he finally got a hold of me. I said, hello, Spike. He said, hello, Sam. Sam, you only see Sam. I said, okay, what's up, dude? You know, and he said, <laughs> and he says, I want to talk to you about um, Ganja and Hess. I said, okay. But because I know he was a big fan, a big fan of Bill Guns and Ganja and Hess, loved it. I said, but I want to talk to you about the song, You Got to Learn. I said, okay, wh what about it? Um, I like to um, use it. Do we have permission? To move, you know, to uh, acquire the rights, so to speak, you know. I said, sure. And I wasn't going to turn them down. And it is Spike Lee. I said, yes. But I also know that he's a very private person. So I had no idea what he was going to do with the song. He doesn't do that. He doesn't let people know what's in his head before he does it. So I said, well, this was on a Thursday. I remember specifically because it was everything took place, was consummated that Monday. He called me that Thursday and said, uh, uh, I'd like to, you know, you, you would grant me the rights to use it. And I said, Spike, yes, on one condition. 
He said, what's that? I said, I know you Spike Lee. So I know that you take your, your words is your bond. I'll only grant you the rights to the film if you use the film in the same spirit in which I wrote it. And he said, he said, by all means, maestro, by all means. I said, okay. And I trusted him. He says, okay, uh, I'll call your lawyer tomorrow. This is, this is Thursday. He called my lawyer on Friday. He called me back on Friday. He says, let's meet 10 o'clock on Monday. <laughs> it was done. Now, but the interest, that, that's, that's the prelude to what I'm about to say now. I didn't know what the music was going to be used for. I had no idea, none. He invited me and um, my agent, my manager rather, and my, my manager, my lawyer, out to, to Brooklyn. And they sent this car for us and we went, and he said, no, you, and when I pulled up, it was in the yard of it, there was a church, okay? And I said, oh, this is very interesting. I still didn't know what was going on because he had kept me out of the loop. <laughs> And when we got out of the car and I was met by the assistant director and his, and his, his assistants, they said, you wait outside. You can't go inside yet. I said, okay. So we went and sat in this tent, et cetera. She comes out and says, okay, you can go inside now. They escorted us inside the church. And lo and behold, it was the same church scene in Ganja and Hess. Uh, I, he, he set me and, and um, my manager in the, in the rear, in the back. He said, Sam, I don't want them to know that you're here. I said, okay. It was, a, it was the church scene. I, my mouth flew open. And he looked at me and he said, you're surprised, aren't you? I said, no, I'm shocked. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I said, I'm completely shocked by this. And... Um, they kept shooting the scene and shooting the scene. And the character that was playing me never got it right the first time. And, and Spike said, stop, stop, you know, cut, cut, cut. He kept doing it one time, two times, three times, and the fourth time. And my manager said, Tim, you need to, why don't you just go up there and just do the scene? I said, no, 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 I can't do that. So every time Spike would go up and then come back and look at me, because remember the audience, the place was packed with African congregation. They couldn't get it, he couldn't get it right, but he would look at me and kind of wink at me. At the last cut, he walked up to the character. I don't know the name of the actor, and, and I, I mean no disrespect to the actor who played Luther Williams. And so who, if you're listening, apologies. He walked him, had some kind of talk with him in the corner. And he must have given him a blessing, a, ble a, a cursing out. Because when Spike Lee came back and said, okay, action, they got it right. He got it right. <laughs> and yes, and um, you know, uh, Valerie Simpson was at the keyboard with her band. She played my song. She played, uh, you got to learn. Oh. It was spellbinding. It was outstanding. It was, it was so awesome. I said, "That's Valerie Simpson." Now I knew I played it. I performed at her club quite a few times, and I knew Ash. I knew Mick Ashford, 
And I did, but I didn't know that she was going to be there. He told me nothing about that. And um, after after they shot the scene, then he walked up to the uh, to the beginning of the church, to the front of the church at the pulpit, and said, "Okay, now." To the audience, because first, oh no, he did say them. You people are supposed to be in church, and you're sitting there acting like all quiet and conservative. This is a black gospel church. Come on, let yourself go. I want to hear some amens. I want to hear some shouting. You know, like in the black church, and they like they did in the ganja and hash, right? And they finally did. After it was over, uh, he walked back to me. He says, "Okay, I got something I want to say." He walked back up to the front of the church and he said, ladies and gentlemen, the gentleman who wrote this song that you all are singing and playing and you that's, that's acting, he's in the back saying, that's when he introduced me. Oh man, it was so wonderful. It was a good feeling. You know, they gave me a standing ovation and everything, but I, 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 felt, I felt really respected. It was a great, great feeling. And then, and, he, and then after the scene, scene was over, Spike walked out to me outside and he said, Sam, I got to ask you a personal question. I said, what is it? How did I do? Do you think Bill Gunn would be proud of me? Because he knew no. I would. I said, Bill would be, uh, yes, he would be ecstatic. Are you proud of me? I said, yes. And I gave him, you know, we hugged each other, braced each other, and kissed each other. He's such a humble guy, but that that's the only time that I knew what the film was about. I was completely in a daze. I was just so shocked. I was pleased, but that's the way Spike was. That's how that happened with, with um, Aaron to answer your question about Spike Lee. That's how that film, that's how that song became he said, Sam, because the whole, his interpretation of Gondon Hess was based on my song. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. That's wow. the ultimate, talk about legacy. That was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, uh, You Gotta Learn is just one of many incredible pieces in Gondon Hess. And one thing Thank that you. we all discussed pretty strongly was... Um, how much Bill, how much involvement Bill Gunn had in developing the soundtrack? I know you said your creative process is to think about the characters and put yourself there and just write what comes to you, like like notes on a staff. But did Bill have any input into like the writing or creation of some of these songs? And and what was it like to work with him in that capacity? Well, to answer, no, he did not write any of the songs. Number one, he inspired all of them. Oh, okay. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, one of the things that, that he, he and I had agreed upon when he hired me, not only as to play the role of the preacher, but when I was hired to be the composer, he flat right up, walked up to me and said, you're the composer, not me. You write the music. And I trust you. And he did. Now, my processes, my processes in writing a score is to come up with concepts and ideas. And I might go to the piano and come up with a, a melody or something and play a little bit of it for the director to see if he likes where I'm going, if he likes the, the direction in which I'm going. And I did that. And he would say, yep, I like it. Go ahead. Do what you got to do. Take it and finish it. 
that's all I needed to hear. I mean, that's a great endorsement of one's talent is to hear that from the director, who's also the writer, and says, okay, I like where you're going with the concept. So I said that, so after I would do that, after he would say something like that, then I would go and I would do my homework and come back and say, this is the finished project. This is where I'm going. What do you think? And he would say, yeah, I like that. So then I could cross that off my list and go to the next one and, and make that one better or something. Because, but now every time I wrote a piece of music, it, the first time I write it isn't the finished product because I would go back and rewrite it or add to it uh, because maybe something in the scene caused me to make some adjustments in the, in, in the concept of the writing. You said that it was hard at times. What was the hardest piece to write um, of all of them on Ganjan Hess? Ah, the hardest was the when Hess is dying in the shadow of the cross. You hear the primal scream? That's me. I, that uh, the way that came about was when we were when it was time to do that that scene musically. He said, "I need a, I need to hear the sound of his soul being saved in the shadow of the cross, and you being a preacher's son, my mother and my father, and three sisters." of preachers. I got all kinds of preachers in my in my family, but me being a man of faith at the, being a man of faith, he came to me and he entrusted me with coming up with something unique for the sound of Hess dying in the shadow of the cross. That was an amazing challenge. I dwelled on that for days, for, for days. And the only way that I could come up with that was um, the whole crew was at, at the house. I had a music room. Now the house was built in 1730. And so the music room had, had a stencil ceiling and a stencil floor, a fireplace and a grand piano. I told the crew, the director, lock me in this music room. I do not want to come out for three days. The sound man put a nagra, I think that's what they call it, right? Nagra in the um, music room with the cables running under the door. And in that room, I had an out of body experience. I stayed locked up in that room for three days uh, the first out-of-body experience for me frightened me. Um, and this is really true, and it really did happen. I don't care what people say. Um, the, and me screaming and me not knowing and me making sounds was all recorded because the, the, the Niagara ran for 24-7. The second time I had it is when I had to scream. And it was recorded. Now, I didn't know 
at the time that they were going to use it. I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, I was in there for three days, and the only time I ate was when I cracked the door and they put food on it, and they just handed me food, and I ate. Right. And the crew, so after three days, I walked, I said, okay, I'm done. Like I said, no, nothing happened. I just went through hell. I, said, I went through a metamorphosis. It was a total metamorphosis. I just evolved into how many, 3,000 years of, of sorrow and pain and thoughts and dreams and concepts, pain and happiness and joy and visions and nightmares and things. And, uh, I walked out exhausted. I was just totally exhausted. And the next thing I know, when they called me into the editing room and said, we want you to hear what the editor, Victor Koneski, uh, used for that scene, he played that. I said, no. no you didn't. He says, yeah. Victor loved it. The sound editor loved it. The music editor said, loved it. Hess, Dwayne said, Phew. I mean, they were, it's hard to describe the, the, the exuberance, the satisfaction, I guess you could say. Bill was thrilled. I said, Bill, he said, and he said, and he looked at me and he said, that's what I wanted. That'll work for me. But then once he said that, then I was at peace. Because I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I didn't know that, that's, that it would that it would satisfy him to the to that extent. And it did. And then it was all okay for me. I said, I guess I did all right. <laughs> but that's how that happened. To me, that was the hardest part. That was, it was painful. It was painful. But it was, it, it was painful, but it was real. You know, it, it, I didn't know. And that bothers me even to this day when I see that particular scene. Um, people who um, understand the soul and spirituality, and um, they understand that. You know, one doesn't have to be a religious person, I think, to understand it, because it's about feeling. It's about understanding um, what we're trying to, what we as filmmakers and creative people try to do to uh, define moments with sound and music. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying to define what a person would feel like dying, a, a vampire dying, if you will, a, a Hess dying in the shadow of a cross. Um, and that's, he said, I captured that. You had to get there, it sounds like. You had to, you had to make it real. Thank um, you. I, okay. I guess it worked. <laughs> Uh, I wanted, there are two other songs that really, um, that really spoke to me during the movie. Uh, the first one's obviously The Blood of the Thing, which I believe yeah. you wrote the lyrics for. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, the thing is this truth of the thing. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, what was the process of writing those lyrics? Like they're so they, I mean, I, you've talked to this a little bit already, but um, they're so integrated with the plot and the themes of the movie, right? Like it's all right there. It's in that song. Um, yeah. um, that, that was, I, I have to be honest that the credit with that goes with Bill, Bill and I. Okay. I wrote the music, but he and I uh, co-wrote that poem. Mm. No, I'm not going to take credit for that. Um, the concept of the Black Queen of Murphia, and it was written in the ages. I don't remember all the words, but I didn't remember the music. Um, that, that was an African-inspired, it, it, because we did our research. We, we, I've been to Africa before. Bill has been to Africa. I mean, um, the, it was inter, it was an integral part of the script because as Bill, at that scene where Bill was sitting at the typewriter and he writes that poem about the, to the black male children, that's how, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's part of the brilliance, Bill, how he came up with that. And when he gave it to me, and I added some words and I changed some of it around because that's because I knew the film. That's because I knew the story. And he trusted me with that. Uh, that, that and and the, the, the music, the chant is part of my heritage. It's part of where I come from. It's it, it's a chant. It, that's what that is. It's a chant. It's a celebration. Um, that's how I wrote that. It's, it's kind of hard to explain to you, mm -hmm. but it's a chant. It, mm -hmm. It's a historical chant. So it's a, it, it is a spiritual chant. Mm-hmm. And it's deliberate spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 was where that's how that came about in my head. Mm -hmm. And I it's used. Like the I did, and so when he said, when I finished it, um, as I was, and when he presented the poem to me after he and I had finished it, I said I want to put music to it because that was just going to be read. No. I didn't want it to be read. I wanted it to be sung, or sang. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Yes, I love it. Let's do it." And I did it. I, I wrote it that way with that in mind. And then he said to me, "But I want you to sing it." I said, "Oh, okay. oh, really? Yes." <laughs> I said. You sure? I said, yeah, no. I want you to sing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you you never would have known the 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 poem, the the lyrics, and the music just flow so well together. We all assumed that it was one hundred percent straight from you, but it's wonderful that like the writing of the movie, the plot, and the music married so naturally that we couldn't tell uh -huh. the difference. Yeah, 
It's great. Uh, let's let's keep it specific, um, if we can, just on one more piece of music that we were all curious about. The close of the film, obviously, the, after the last shot of of Ganja, uh, just sort of smirking out the window, cuts immediately to a children's choir uh, singing over the credits. What? Yes. Tell us about that piece. Ah. Oh. Now you really, really are tingling my heart here. Okay, the heart feathers are, are, are fluffing. Um, children represent the future. Children represent who we, who we been, who we are, and who we hope to be. They represent those three different layers. And each one of those zones um, are important because children represent innocence. You know, they have, um, they have a way of making adults feel small. <laughs> they can really bring us down to earth. And we wanted the children to end the film so that people could see and hear children who we all could relate to, most of us have children, um, represent the future. They represent, um, as he says, the truth, the blood of the thing is the truth of the thing. Kids are the truth. They, they, they are true. They're just, I love children because they don't bite their tongue about something. I mean, they just come out with the most amazing things. It just shocks the heck out of you. But you may, you may not like what they're saying, but they're, talk, they're saying exactly what they feel. You can't suppress that. And symbolically, that's what it stood for. Because everything about Garns and Hess was symbolism. You know, it was. And that was deliberate. We wanted to end, and we wanted to end it on some. And that was completely unusual in, in, in the Hollywood genre. Nobody closes a film with kids singing in a church. You know that. <laughs> Hello, we're different. Hello. That's, that's how that came about. And when and when when Ganja asked about when she looks out the window and she kind of like and, and the camera zooms in on her eye, she's saying, "Yeah, okay, I got something for you. You know, uh, it ain't over yet." <laughs> You got to deal with the kids now. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the from the outset of the movie, based on everything you've already said, was the intent was to make a pretty radical film. When you were approaching the music, did you feel like it had to be equally radical? Like it had to take people by surprise too? Uh no, no, uh, no. I I have to tell you, I, I didn't. I don't think in those terms. I, I don't think. I, I, I don't, and I didn't think in terms of, oh, let me be radical. That, no, it, it, it isn't a pre-thought. It's not premeditated radical. Radicalism, I guess that's the word for it. No. Um, to say, did I want to be different? I don't want to be different. I am different. You know, if you're different, you're different. Now, if you make a conscious effort to be different, I wonder how real that is. You know, I, I like to think that if a person is different, that, that they're, born, they're born that way, or that's the way they think, that's the way, that's what's in their blood. They're different. 
rather than like everyone else. Because I mean, if you want to, you know, if if you want, uh, uh, like they make cars on a runway, you know, every car comes off and it's like the same. If you want to be a runway car, like everybody else, then I don't find that very interesting. I find um, people who are true to themselves to be more interesting than those who are not. And uh, one of the things that I know, I know that I uh, that I write music differently than other people. That much I know. I've accepted that. I don't question that, and I just be myself. But it wasn't that I set out to be radical. No. It just happened to be a radical um, evolution, I guess, or a result. Because it wasn't received, it wasn't usual. It wasn't something that everybody was used to. No. Um, but isn't that the definition of being radical, I guess, is when you kind of like go, you kind of go against the norm? Mm-hmm. You know, um, do you think it was radical? Yeah, like unequivocally, yes. I feel like it is even 40-some years later still such a stunningly yeah. experimental, radical film, and the music goes right along with it. I mean, it's a beautiful soundtrack. By today's think, standards, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, and you, Aaron, you think it's radical? I'd say that it definitely it feels... Um, feels like it's it's doing its own thing in a way that I really appreciate quite a bit. Um, e- again, yeah, even even today, I think it's it's such a remarkable film and soundtrack as well. Cody, um, I would say yes, um, and this is this feels like such a fitting time for that reevaluation, right? Um, to, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're getting so many more eyes on this movie so many more people listening to this music um so yeah i i guess i would i would say it is yes you all are giving me a pretty good insight i I suppose it is radical radical meaning that it's it was it took guts took a lot of nerve Mm -hmm. it took some leaps in that sense i guess that is radical you know again i have to tell you nobody knew what to do with us (laughs) <laughs> they, had, they, had, they had no idea what to do with that film um, it made us uh, it didn't give me any 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 insecurities whatsoever I mean mm-hmm. I was glad that we could shake people up the whole point is I wanted to I wanted people we wanted people to see and feel things different feel different things coming from creative people um because that was a time where everybody was trying to be like everybody else. And that's very difficult for me to be. I cannot, that's a hard shoe to wear. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't, (laughs) I I, I, I can't wear that kind of cap. I have to be wearing who I am at all times. And Bill Gunn is definitely one of a kind. So, um, I mean, we had fights over this film. You know, when we were going to make the film at, at Kelly Jordan, you, you all don't know that story, how we had to have, you know, they were going to strip the film out from under us and something, and Bill Gunn had a fight. And we were on there like 
10th floor of Madison Avenue and 43rd Street. He, he threw a water cooler out the street down on Lexington Avenue. <laughs> we had a fifth. Wow. Yeah. I mean, because they, you know, they didn't, they, he did, they didn't know what to make of the film. And of course, we gave the film to the Museum of Modern Art. So that's where it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, it's sort of telling me you don't have to try to make something radical for it to be radical. Like you said, it just was a natural extension of what you wanted to do with the movie. You didn't set out, neither did Bill right. Gunn, saying yeah. this has to be a radical revolutionary piece. It, it just needed to be yeah. what was inside of you, right? But I guess that leads me to ask, how, I guess internally yourself, how, to, to what extent do you feel your own history of political activism uh, comes through in your music? It's, it's part of you, clearly. Do you think it shows up in your music in any particular way? I think that because of my history and my culture, my whole experience in life as as as, a, as growing up poor, but didn't know I was poor, growing up in the Deep South during the amazing 50s and 60s, civil rights and the protest and the, the, you know, the bigotry and racism and fighting for freedom and injustice and everybody's rights, um, being you know, like in Cairo, Illinois, being me singing at Martin Luther King's funeral and going to jail with him and Jesse Jackson and stuff like that, and being being beaten and attacked, water hoses and batons and tanks and things during the 60s, it, it gives you a sense of direction. It gives you a sense of purpose. Um, I just didn't like being messed with in that sense. I didn't like my, I didn't like being made to feel that I was inferior or second class. Along with the history of my father, who was born in 1898. Um, My mother, being 99 years old, she lived a long time. I had history in my family. And so and I'm the baby of the family out of uh, all eight brothers and sisters. So I felt like I had a lot to continue to carry on. Um, Having studied history and black history particularly, but history in general and having traveled overseas, having lived in Morocco and Switzerland, and I've been around the world, sort of, not around the world, but halfway around the world. I I had some sense of purpose. I knew that I could bring something back and share it. That's what happened with Mina when she went to Nigeria and Liberia. When she came back, she was a different person. I mean, you know, I wish every human being, black or white, could travel outside the United States just for the purpose of seeing the rest of the world so that you can get a sense of who you are, where you are now back home. It gives you a different perspective on your own identity. And, and that's what my music, I would hope that my music generated and would inspire that people would say, okay, well, this man uh, has, saying something through his art 
his fingers that obviously comes from some place um, that I I have extreme humility toward, very humble toward, and respect for. To this day, I don't take anything for granted. You can't because it never turns out to be the way you think it's going to be. It always turns out the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not surprised by certain things. I just... Also, I think you have a, um, a happier, uh, you, you're much more satisfied by being surprised with things that happen, even if they're different than what you want it to be. Because if you set, if, because you're setting yourself up for a complete letdown if you think you understand everything that's going to happen before it happens. It never, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Yeah. Not everything, some things, but I, I just don't take, I don't take, I don't take creativity for granted. Because that's what you're asking. No, mm-hmm. but my music, uh, like writing and painting and sculpturing, any artist, I feel what, whatever art form they have, they want it to live on. They want it to have uh, some kind of life. They want it to breathe whether it's outside their studio or down or in a museum or an art shop or on display they 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 are giving of themselves because a piece of yourself is left with every product every piece that you produce i mean every song i write a piece of me dies a piece of me is in that and whether it's whether it happened thirty years ago, sixty years ago, or, or just yesterday, a piece of me is left as an imprint of me left on that. It has to be because it can It it, it was born in a moment. Mm-hmm. It was released in a moment, and I I gave birth to it. Mm-hmm. So if I gave birth to it, aren't I the the mother? Aren't I the father of that? This, it, didn't, it didn't happen on I mean, it, I see myself as a host. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a host I, of that that has, not, that has left me. Yeah. What you're saying dovetails so perfectly well into another one of our questions about um, why preserving and promoting uh, black art is so important, especially today. Uh, you're talking about pieces yeah. of yourself dying off once they're out and like living beyond you um, and just how universal that is to all yeah. art. And representing history. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in your view, why then is it so important to preserve and promote black art specifically like Ganja and Hess and its soundtrack? Yes. Yeah. The, well, that's that's what I'm saying. That that's why I think I'm answering your question. That's the legacy that I hope that people will take away from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is ultimately what I want. Yes, to answer that question, I want people to say, okay, this, uh, you know, 20 years from now when I'm long gone, or 30 years, or 50 years, okay, well, this is who that person was. This was. Uh, maybe I can understand him through his music. That's what we do about every 
art form. Every book that we read that was written a hundred years ago, you're learning something about that time and that artist and that person, that writer, or that piece of music, whether it's Chopin or Duke Ellington, whatever. Um, I mean, when I, I produced, I wrote the music to Duke, Duke Ellington Boulevard, and I remember playing on Duke Ellington's piano. I felt him, you know, I, fe I felt the spirit isn't that what we want, though? You want you want to somehow another touch the, um, the tears and joy and, and hopes and smiles of people that you are reading about or, or trying to teach and hand down to your kids, or if 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 you are an instructor in a um, in a class, aren't you passing on what knowledge you have picked up to pass on to them? You have to feel that in order to to inspire your students. I mean, that person is living through you as a teacher, as a professor, as a as as an instructor. But that's, that's what history is. You know, one of the things that I've learned about history, you know, when it comes to black people, is my favorite saying is, "They always remember the battle." but they always forget the blood. I don't want them to forget the blood. I don't want them to. I'm not going to let them forget the blood. I'm going to be there to remind them all the time. Damn it. Okay, I know you remember the battle, but what about the people who died in that battle? They have a saying, well, we lost the battle, but you know, we won the war. Well, you know, when it comes to black people, you know, they remember the battle, but they sometimes forget the blood that was shed in that battle. And I'm not gonna let them forget it. And I want them to remember, I want, when I say them, the world, whoever they are, to remember that. It's important. And that, that's, that's the contribution that I can make. And I think every little contribution, you know, every crumb, you know, enough crumbs can make a pie, you know, enough crumbs can build, a, make a cake. Because if you break it down, it just breaks down into crumbs. Well, let me be one of those crumbs towards something, you know. That's the, that's the way I look at it. And I, and I feel like this. I've been on this earth much too long to take it as a joke or something. You know, I, I take it very seriously. I have fun with my life, but I... I like to think that I like to leave something that deserves preservation that can be a legacy. And I promised my mom and my dad and my sisters and my sister Nina, I promised them all that I would carry on the legacy because I'm the baby of the family. I'm the baby of the family. <laughs> You know, we babies, we got to carry on, you know. And I'm proud of that. I'm not the least bit embarrassed by that. It seems like this is something you've always been thinking about. I mean, I, I keep thinking about the children at the end of Ganja and Hess and what that represents. And it's it's so much of what you're talking about now, right? About leaving something behind and about what comes next and, and legacy. So would you say that that's been something that, that what you're discussing now, this this idea of leaving behind legacy and something worth preserving and remembering the blood, that's something that's united your sort of artistic, creative yeah. output? Yes. 
Yeah, that's well put. I think so. I, probably so. You know, I, I mean, I've never forgotten who I am. I I knew early on that I came from good stock <laughs> um, because because of my dad. I mean, look, for me, it was important. Once I found out how old, look, my father was born in 1898, which meant that his father, my grandfather, was a slave. So I'm only one generation away from slavery. To me, that's astounding. Not my great-great-grandfather, but my grandfather. Because he was born in 18, And then, because when I was coming up as a kid, I didn't understand why he was hard for him to express his express warmth and feelings. Because that's not the generation he was born in. He didn't come from that. That wasn't, Even though he was born in 1898, you could say, well, two years later, it would be... 1900, and he would have been two years old. Yeah, but I understood what it was supposed to not be able to express yourself and not be able to be, to be able to be real and not be able to show strength, not be able to believe in yourself completely, and not to be able to think that you can, that you are uh, as good as everyone else around you. That's an astounding thing to try to understand and to overcome. I wasn't going to let that happen to me. I was too stubborn. I was too hard-headed, too, too pig-headed, as we say, you know. And Nina definitely was too pig-headed. She was just, too, you know, we come from, no. How dare you tell me that I can't do this and I can't do that? So that, that, that fortitude gives you a great deal of strength, you know? And, and, and if I have to stand uh, alone on the mountaintop and, and shout that out, so be it. But I, I'd be damned if you're gonna tell me that I can't do this and do that because, and, you, and then you give me the reason is something as shallow as superficial as let's say the color of my skin or your biases or something, because that's the culture in which I come from. See, um, that's why when I have I teach my students today, I teach, a lot of them say uh, they they come to class, these young musicians, and all they think about is is, is the is the bling. You know, they think about bling, they think about the money, they think about the cars, but they don't have any idea about the business of show business. They don't know that. They're going to be raped, and musically, I mean, you know, that they're going to be ripped off because it's a business. And one of the things that I try to instill in, in young people today is to take yourself very seriously. Take this art very seriously. It's not surface stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, it is. Some of them don't have the capacity to go to, it's so deep. But I try to inspire them, you know. Um, so, Jason, I think, yes, I, and to you, Harry, and Cody, and Ellen, my point is, I have to leave something back. Mm -hmm. I have to leave something, some, something that's rich mm -hmm. or flavorable. 
something <laughs> that that one can sink one's teeth into and, and that you enjoy the bite, you know, that you enjoy how delicious it is. <laughs> you I keep making these these vampirism Ganja and Hess metaphors. They just come to you with the blood and the <laughs> biting. I love it. <laughs> um. Do they? I, it's kind of hard to live that down. <laughs> I mean, we, we did it. You know, <laughs> do I sound like that? A <laughs> little bit. You got the red. You got the red and the black. It's uh, it's definitely a vampire look. Just don't dangle a cross in front of me at the moment. <laughs> uh, I think you're safe. Uh, so all, everything you're saying about being taken seriously and and sort of doing doing what's inside you is. So Light in the Attic uh, was the group that released uh, the Ganja and Hess soundtrack on vinyl recently, within the last couple of yeah. years, I believe. And yes. uh, just full disclosure, I've, I've received my copy in the mail. I think all of us maybe ordered it by mail as soon as we found out that it was repressed. Um, oh. I, I guess it, it makes me wonder how it feels to have your work unearthed after that long and taken, I guess, seriously oh. after so long. Oh, it, listen, when, 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 was it Light in the Attic Records? That's the name of it. Mm -hmm. When you all put that album out, when I first when I knew that you wanted to put it out, it was the greatest feeling in the world. I said, finally, somebody is taking my music and putting it out there. It, it was I'm so thankful and grateful that you all took the interest in my music to want to put it out on vinyl. Yes, it's a good feeling to have your music um, um, cherished and treasured that way. For me, because Ganja and Hess, remember, uh, Ganja and Hess had been ignored for so many years. So it was like, okay, we did it. Um, but like so many other people, not everything you do is, is going to be treasured and accepted. So some things, you, you can write masterpieces and they'll be in a trunk for marbles and, you know, you go and you, and you write another piece and you, know, you sing another song and you say, okay, maybe it will get exposed or it get recognition. And then maybe, and then someday somebody comes along and says, I want to go through the trunk in your attic. And they pull out a script that's covered in dust and stuff. This is fantastic, man. Where have you been keeping it? You said, what are you talking about? You know, I want to put it out. Blah, blah, blah. I want to produce it. I want to put it in, uh, I want to buy a play about it or I want to make a movie out of it. And they, what it does to you, it reinvigorates you to a place that you, you, had hoped would come. And so I'm not trying to sound syrupy about the whole thing, but I am really hum extremely humble about it because I'm grateful that you guys wanted to do that and put it out. So when it, the day came that it actually was on vinyl, I said vinyl, not CD, because we're on old school, cool. That's really cool because they had given up on turntables, but turntables are coming back, you know. Um, 
the fact that it is now cherished historically, it's on vinyl, which means you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. And that's a great, I, I appreciate that respect. I do. So it's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. Um, I mean, I'm hoping my al the album sitting right here next to me, by the way. Okay. <laughs> the vinyl is right here. I've been waiting for you, so I've had it right here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good feeling. I mean, it's like, it's like the same thing when I wrote that music for Philadelphia, when I wrote some of that music for Philadelphia. It's the same thing. Wow. I'm in for Academy Award for Philadelphia. And, and I wrote that um, it's in your eyes, you know. Um, and when Jonathan Demme asked me, to, you know, he loved that song. Next thing I know, it's on the soundtrack. I said, cool, beautiful. These are things which, you know, this is what we do as professional composers, as mm -hmm. writers and things. So, um, and then I went on to write the score, I, write, uh, I wrote the music, some music for personal problems, that black soap opera. There you go. Uh, <clears throat> You know, that's, those, are, those are just pieces of things that I do. I guess I have one more question, Jason. I don't know yes. if, I, I sort of have an idea, right? Because of everything we've been talking about. But um, I wanted to ask, why, why do you think that Ganjin has, has undergone this sort of reappraisal? Like you said, it was sort of ignored for so long and now it enjoys such a great reputation, right? Where we all think it's so great and like we're talking about it. Why do you, what do you think it is that brought it back? And like, what do, you, what do people finally seeing that, that they missed for so long? I, I, I think it's because it's a new generation of people out there now looking back and appreciating the kind of work we did. You know, I think it's, I like to think, and I know that it is, it's a new generation. Every generation reaches back to the generation before it and sees what was there, a gem or something that they want to relate to. I, I hope, that's what I'm hoping that that's why it's getting a resurgence. I think people are now recognizing it as a, as a, as a piece of work that we really worked hard on that. And I think it deserves some, some kind of recognition for the kind of blood, sweat and tears we put into it. We, we, we've been told, Bill Gunn and I were told that we were like revolutionaries. We were we revolutionized the independent filmmakers and things of that nature because of our daring attitude and our daring move, move to do something like this. Um, but isn't that what all people who dare to do things end up being respected for or being related to or being asked to talk about? How dare you do this? Or you did that. What was it like for you to buck society or, or, or go against the norm? Ganjan Hess, to me, was, was one of those films. We, we bucked the system. We did. Uh, it, it was... It, it was it was that, it, that's what the generation was back in the 70s. That's what it was. The 80s are different. The 90s are different. 2000s are different. But back then, it was unheard of for us to do something like this. I, I never dreamed that it would live on in, in as I say, an effigy like it is now. 
Um, but I'm glad that it is because I want people to know the story behind it, the history behind it. Maybe they'll learn something from it or not. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll find it interesting. But I like them to know that there are, and there were and still are some people who did some things based on their, 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 their feeling, their art, their heart. And they believed in it. When we talk about the American dream, okay, our dream was to do something and we did it. We, we worked hard at it. And the price that you pay for, for following your dream is hopefully some peace of mind. You know, not, not, the, not the financial restitution or lack of it, but I got an opportunity to do something that I'm proud of that I did from me. You know, it came out of me. Nobody made me do anything. I didn't, I didn't do something that I was embarrassed about. That's hard. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I like to think that, well, I know Bill Gunn, um, he would be absolutely overjoyed if he was still alive today to, to, to hear this podcast and to hear you all ask those questions and to, and, and, and to, uh, to be inquisitive and, and be curious about his work. Um, he would be, he would probably say, well, it was about time. <laughs> you say, yeah. And it is. You know, yeah. because when you know, when, you know, when you know, when you know something that someone else doesn't know, there's a certain amount of um, empowerment that that gives you. And that, I don't mean in a bully kind of way, like some people would, would, would take it, but it empowers your empowers you to move on and do more things and to follow your instinct even more. It motivates you and inspires you even more. And, and I know that um, for me, uh, that empowerment of being motivated by, by myself and by my not hindering my dream internally is what keeps me young youthful, spontaneous. It, it keeps me on my game. Um, I don't have time for laziness. Um, I like being, I like life too much. I like living life too much. And that keeps me highly motivated all the time. Great. Uh, I mean, I feel it also gives me it gives me a lot of lows because I'm like a sponge. <laughs> you know, you, you soak up everything that's going on in the world, and that's what that's what musicians and artists write about. 
We write about what's going on around us. We mm-hmm. write about what's going on in our families, between the relationships between our daughters and wives and girlfriends and grandmothers and grandfathers and how everybody gets on your nerves now and then and you got to get out of here. But all that's inspiring. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. It just means I'm sick of you today. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. just wanna, I just want to say, yeah, in, in a year that's been full of really, really shitty stuff, I am so glad that Ganja and Hess and you have come in front of us. It has been an absolute joy to think about this film, to listen to the music that accompanies it, to know exactly what input you've had into it, and to just know that it's out there and that there are more people like us who are thinking about it and more people who are going to receive its messages and listen to its music and a whole new generation that's going to love it. Uh, so I want to thank you. I want to thank you once again. I know that we're running way over what we promised, but I really want to thank you just again okay. for for taking us up on this, for responding to our questions, to really just being part of this. Um, okay, what can well, we? Thank you, bro. Of course. Much. What? And, and I all of you for that. I, I'm so happy. Thank you for having me, and it's been a thank you for joining us. Oh, it's our pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and I wish you all well. And peace and safety. Just be safe. And you be too. Well. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much. Bye, Sam. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.